1: Sir Thomas Brown said in the 17th century, When I survey the occurrences of my life and call into account the finger of God, I can perceive nothing but an abyss and mass of mercies, those which others would term crosses, afflictions, judgments, misfortunes, to me who inquire farther into them than their visible effects, have ever proved the secret dissembled or hidden disguised favors of God's affection I'm so glad to be old people say well you know she's really getting old no i'm not getting old i got there quite a while ago <laughs> and i think it's a tremendous privilege to be pretty close to 73 and to realize the secret dissembled favors of God's affections, all the wonderful ways in which he has led me. And I will just be able to give you a tiny glimpse this afternoon of some of those, what those ways have been. But I've entitled my talk A Personal Encounter with the Cross. A Personal Encounter with the Cross. I believe that every one of us, if we are honest before God, must accept an encounter with the cross. Not just one, but probably very many, depending on how long you live and how long you have known the Lord Jesus himself. But we need to come to the foot of the cross where we can get our minds focused where they belong, realizing that it is the great symbol of the Christian faith, isn't it? Why do we have crosses on our church steeples, or crosses in the church, or why do we wear little gold crosses around our necks? Very often we probably forget all about the meaning, and yet it was because Christ himself was willing to be captured by wicked men, flogged, slapped, stripped, and nailed to a cross, that you and I are gathered here because we love him, because we want to be like him, and to follow him faithfully. And this personal encounter will help us to become followers of one who was crucified. And the cross always entails loss. No one who calls himself a Christian can evade this very obvious and stark fact. It's not by any means an easy thing to recognize in any given situation or any personal loss an opportunity that it affords for participation in Christ's own loss. The Bible says in Romans 8.17, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, this is a very big if, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. And I believe that God has a measure of suffering for every single one of us, not once, but many times in our lives. And let me give you a very simple definition of suffering, which I believe covers literally everything. And that is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Now that would, that would cover the roast burns in the, in the oven when your husband is going to bring the bo- boss home for dinner. I mean, that is not a huge thing that's going to ruin your whole life. But it will feel like it at the time, won't it? So that's having what you don't want. You didn't want a black roast coming out of the, of the oven. You didn't want a broken-down washing machine, for example. But there are a lot of things that you do want. When I lost my first husband, I did not have what I wanted. And when someone has finds out that he has cancer, then he certainly has something that he doesn't want. So suffering is that which cuts across our preferences. And my second husband, Addison Leach, used to say that When the will of God cuts across the will of man, somebody has to die. And that's the truth. That is the Christian life. Death to ourselves. Not a popular notion at all, is it? And yet it is the very heart of the Christian message. Christ gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us in order that we, in our turn, might be willing to lay down our lives for him. The older I get, the more clearly I recognize the necessity to embrace the cross. And I had the very great privilege of growing up in a strong Christian family where we had family devotions every day, and we sang a hymn every day, and we sang all the stanzas. We didn't have praise songs in those days. (laughs) We had the great old hymns of the faith, some of which had six or seven stanzas. And we learn them just by singing them. You know, your little children can memorize practically overnight. And the earlier you start training them, the more hymns they will know. And I think that all of us six children in our family know probably hundreds of hymns. But Christ is asking us if we are willing to accept the cross that he wants to give us. Now, what is the taking up of the cross? Jesus said, If you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself and take up the cross and follow me. Did you get the three conditions of becoming a disciple? If you want to be my disciple, you give up your right to yourself. Now that has got to be the hardest thing that any of us ever has to do. We do not want to give up our right to ourselves. It's my life, it's my way, I want things my way, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But that's not gonna work in a personal encounter with the cross. You give up your right to yourself. Just say, Lord, here I am, all of me for you forever. Do anything you want with me. And when he hears that prayer and starts doing what he wants with you, it's very likely that you're not going to appreciate it. You're going to forget all about the idea, this wonderful ideal, of being a Christian. It's not by accident that I received, just two days ago, this letter from someone who listens to my radio program. And there may be some here who will recognize who this person is, since she comes from not very far away. Her 15-year-old son committed suicide. Her older sister was killed by a drunk driver. Her younger brother killed himself. Her father killed her mother and then himself. And her little son, two years old, died. A son, a sister, a brother, a father, a mother, and a son—six members of this woman's family. But she says this, Through my faith in Christ I handled my siblings' deaths well, but I could never quite accept the deaths of my parents. I had no peace, although I could quote all the right verses and sought desperately to believe in God's purposes through tragedy. When my son Eric died, I was two years old. I felt that God had given him to me to help me to continue on after that loss, and suddenly he was gone. I couldn't eat. I couldn't pray. I thought God had totally forsaken us, and the waters had come into my soul. A friend from work came over and brought her Bible one day. She read many verses to me. My focus began to change. Romans eight twenty-eight is one of the passages that she refers to here. It says in Romans eight twenty eight, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good, fits into a pattern for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Now, we don't have to know how God's purposes are worked out. This kind of a list would just make all of us think, How can God possibly have the whole world in his hands? It doesn't look as though he has, does it? How can he allow that to happen to one person? And yet, this one person has learned so much. He says, God has totally renewed my mind. I have his peace. I cope with all these sudden, violent deaths. I'm reading books by Amy Carmichael and Oswald Chambers. I know that God is giving me beauty for ashes as I become broken bread and poured out wine." I just know that God sent that letter to me just before I was to come here. I don't know anything about your stories, but I know the one who knows and the one who loves you with an everlasting love. My dear friend Van, whom I got to know when I was a college student, She went to Africa, I went to South America. We didn't see each other for 13 years. But she wrote letters. She was a wonderful letter writer. And in one of her letters she said, Isn't the whole point of life not so much the getting out of our troubles as it is the staying in God's presence? I'll read that again. Isn't the whole point of life not so much the getting out of our troubles as it is the staying in God's presence. And I would hope that before you go out of here this afternoon you will make up your mind to stay in God's presence. Whatever your trials and tribulations and difficulties may be and all the list of excuses that you're giving to the Lord that you can't do anything about this and you just don't know why you have to be so slow in all this, God Will help you. One of the watchwords of my life is Isaiah 50, verse 7. It says, The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Now I was greatly confounded last Tuesday. I'm sitting there at my desk typing away on my newsletter on the computer guess what? Computer crashed. I mean, it didn't just go zizzy on the screen, it quit. Black, total black, no buttons, did anything at all. And what could I think of to say but Isaiah 50 verse 7, the Lord God will help me. Now, wouldn't it be nice if immediately the Lord helped me to punch the button and it all came on again? But that is not the case, and we have to get home tonight by 6.30, we hope, because there's a man that's supposed to come to at least look at it. I don't know whether he's going to be able to fix it or not. (laughs) And on Tuesday night, when we got to Philadelphia, where I was supposed to speak the next morning, Wednesday of this week, my dear friend Arlita with whom we were to stay first thing she said to me when I came in the door was my computer just crashed (laughs) and so both of us were just incapable of helping the other one in any way whatsoever now how did I entitle this afternoon's talk a personal encounter with the cross how what can the cross have to do with these crazy machines called computers it's just another instance of the fact God does have the whole world in His hands. He doesn't let anything happen without His permission, and He wants us to trust Him. So I want to give you just a little glimpse of the beginnings of my missionary life. One of the things I want to say whenever young, eager, bright-eyed candidates ask me for advice about going to the mission field and what's it going to be like, I always tell them it's going to be very different from what you think. It's going to be a great deal harder. It's going to be utterly incomprehensible in very many ways. You may be stuck with people that they're the last people in the world that you'd ever want to have to live with, other missionaries, for example. I mean, we get all fired up, you know, we'd love to go to Timbuktu or someplace down in Indonesia, someplace where the people don't wear any clothes. And we can minister because we're the missionaries. But what happens when you're stuck with other missionaries? (laughs) Then you don't feel nearly so zealous to serve the Lord. And... The last thing I say to these young candidates you know, It's not only different from what you expect, it's not only harder than what you expect, it's not only more mysterious than what you expect, but it is also going to be infinitely more glorious. I don't mean when you're in the depths of the hardest thing in your life that it's going to look like the most in, uh, infinitely glorious thing. But when, if and when you reach my very old age and have the privilege of being able to look back over all those years, and I don't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian because I grew up in such a Christian home. I presume that I gave my life to Christ when I was three or four years old in a very simple childlike way. But I can look back, as did Sir Thomas Brown, and feel that all of these were totally in God's hands and they are the very blessings of my life. So my very first year in Ecuador, of course my first job was to learn Spanish since that is the national language of Ecuador. And just yesterday when Lars and I were driving home from Pennsylvania, uh, went into a ladies' restroom in a rest stop and there was a little girl, little sweet-looking woman, she was very small, but she was rushing around, cleaning everything up, and never in my life have I been in a public restroom where on every single sink there was a bouquet of flowers. And so I spoke to her and I mentioned this and I realized immediately that she had a Spanish accent and so I spoke to her in Spanish and I said, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Ecuador. (laughs) And Ecuador was of course where I learned what Spanish I do know. And so we had a lovely little chat, and I commended her on the good job she was doing. And so I spent six months living with an Ecuadorian family who spoke no English at all. They were very highly educated people. The father was a professor in the local university there, and his wife was also a radio broadcaster, as was he. And so I spent about six months with them learning Spanish. And during those six months, there were two British women who were working in the eastern jungle of, the western jungle of Ecuador between the Andes Mountains and the Pacific. Now, I'm sure that many of you are very vague as to just where Ecuador is. It's a very small country on the west side of South America. And if you go straight down from New York, which would be on the east coast in America, If you go straight down, you end up on the west coast of South America. So Ecuador is on the west coast, and the Andes Mountains run straight down through the middle of that country. Then all of the eastern jungle, which runs into Brazil and Peru, is one side where there are many different Indian tribes and the tribe in which these two British Indian, two British women, English women, were working was just one tribe between the city of Quito, the capital city, and the Pacific Ocean. So they learned that there was an American girl in Quito who had studied linguistics and they hastened to invite me to come to work with them on an Indian language that we were told no one outside of that Indian tribe had ever learned and so this was going to be a very difficult kind of an assignment if you don't have an interpreter then you have to do the best you can to listen to what people are saying even though you can't understand a word of it then you write down in phonetic symbols what it sounds like and gradually you begin to pick up words here and there. If you show them a finger, they may give you the word for finger, but then on the other hand, they may give you the word for whatever you're pointing at, you know, so. <laughs> it's not by any means a quick and easy thing, but I prayed very hard that the Lord would supply somebody who would be willing to take um, take care of me in the way of teaching me this language. Was there any Indian who spoke that language which w- who would have the patience with this apparently retarded foreigner (laughs) to sit down and just talk what for him was the easiest language in the world. And people told me there isn't anybody outside the Colorado Indian tribe. Colorado was the Spanish nickname given to this tribe because it's the word Colorado as you people who speak Spanish know means just red the red people. And it was a good name because they painted themselves literally bright red from head to toe. But nobody outside the tribe knew their language, we were told. But I prayed that God would send me someone who would be good at helping me with learning this language. And to my amazement, God provided for me a man who actually spoke the Colorado language because he had grown up On an hacienda on a little farm where there were Colorado Indian children. He was a Spanish speaker and a white man, but he spoke both languages fluently. To my amazement this man was out of a job. He was willing to work at my price, which was extremely low, and miracle of all miracles, he was a Christian. Thrilled to have part in what he saw as the foundational work of ultimately translating for the Colorado Indians the whole Bible. His name was Macadio. Macadio and I worked very happily together for about six or eight weeks. He would come for about an hour at 8 o'clock in the morning and I would sit down with him with my notebook and he would simply talk Colorado. Now he did not know English, of course but he knew Spanish, so he could speak some Colorado and he could give me some interpretation of what he'd said. And so we worked very happily and really quite more speedily than I had expected because of his being bilingual. One morning I was on my knees in my house and I was praying and it just so happened in the providence of God that the passage that I was reading said, think it not strange this is from first peter 3 i think think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you it happens to give you a share in Christ's sufferings and immediately i heard gunshots Now, there was nothing unusual about gunshots because all of the white men who lived in the clearing where I lived hunted with guns, and the Colorado Indians had long since learned the value of the white man's guns, and so they, too, hunted with guns. So we heard gunshots practically every day. But these were followed by people screaming and yelling and horses galloping and general noise and pandemonium all over the clearing. So, of course, I raced out to see what was happening. And I found that Mercadio, my informant, had just been murdered. Now remember, there was nobody else in the world who spoke Spanish and Colorado. Nobody. And as I looked at that corpse with a hole in the head, what do you think I said to God? three-letter word. Why would God allow a thing like this to happen? God knew that there wasn't anybody else that could do what Macario could do. Hadn't God answered my prayer? And of course my mind went all the way back to the time when I was four or five years old hoping to be a missionary. I said, Lord, didn't you give me that desire to be a missionary? Did you lead me to Ecuador? Did I learn Spanish? Did you send me to the western jungle to work with these two English women who so desperately needed my help? Have I come to the wrong tribe? Have I come to the wrong country? Just all kinds of questions. And do you suppose that there was an answer coming from the abyss into which I was looking? There was no explanation. But the Lord was saying to me what he says to you and to me, whenever we're perplexed about anything, will you love me? Will you trust me? Will you praise me? Now, I don't know anybody in this room. I don't know anything at all about what you're going through, but I dare say that every single one of you has something which perplexes you, at least. Many of you have deep sorrow, deep disasters, perhaps, in your family. But the Lord is simply saying, I've got the whole world in my hands. I know exactly what I'm doing. But I want you to learn to love me. And if you want to be my disciple, there are three conditions. Give up your right to yourself. And take up the cross, which means a deliberate, conscious act of saying, yes, Lord, I will accept this cross in whatever form you present it to me. Whatever it means, I will accept it, and then I will be in a position to follow. The third condition. Three conditions. One, give up your right to yourself. Number two, take up the cross. Number three, follow. A personal encounter with the cross. We are not ready by nature to think spiritually. We are ready to assign almost any other explanation to the things that happen to us. There is a certain reticence to infer that our little troubles may actually be the vehicles to bring us to God. Can you imagine that even our little troubles are being used in the hand of God as vehicles to bring us closer to Him. Most of us, I suppose, simply grin and bear it. And we think, oh, well, guess I've got to go through this. I don't know what I've done that made God mad. <laughs> of course, it hasn't got anything to do with whether you make God mad or not. We're all sinners. He gives us suffering in order that we may learn to give up our right to ourselves and to love Him. We grin and bear it. We know that they are the lot of all human beings. And our memories, being marvelously selective, we simply cancel out the little ones, forget about them. None the better for the lessons that we should have learned. Now, this was just really the beginning. Macario um, was killed. The next big blow to my faith was having to watch a mother and baby bleed to death in childbirth. It was a horrible experience in the middle of a very dark night in a very miserable house in which she lived, she was the wife, she was, let's say, the woman who belonged to a father and two sons. And these three men used her as their woman, so nobody of course knew who had actually fathered this baby, but they were beside themselves screaming, trying to climb the walls, these three men. I don't know what was going through their heads, but it was indeed a horrible night and unforgettable experience. Then something very wonderful happened in the middle of that year. when I was working in the western jungle with my two British colleagues. I had, of course, had to continue with the work on the Colorado language even though Macario was dead and there was no one else that could do what he had done. With a great deal more effort, much more slowly, I had sort of succeeded in laying down the foundation of this language for these two British women and I had been coaching them in the use of the phonetic syllables that I was using. This wonderful thing that happened in the middle of that year was that Jim Elliott, whom I had known way back five years before when we were both students at Wheaton College in Illinois, he finally got the green light from the Lord to say, will you marry me? Now he had told me five years before that he was in love with me, but he said, you go ahead and go to Africa, I'm going to South America. I have no way of knowing whether God wants me to remain single for the rest of my life. So he said, I'm not asking you to wait for me. I'm not asking you to marry me. He said, I'm not, I have absolutely no strings on you and I am not going to lay a finger on you. And any young people that are here this, uh, this afternoon, I hope you will remember that. And if anybody of the opposite sex goes to lay a finger on you, just turn around and say, let's not do that. Anyway, all I can tell you at this point, quickly, is Jim did not lay a finger on me but he came to the eastern jungle, to the western jungle from where he lived in the eastern jungle, and he asked me to marry him. And I asked him if he had gotten the green light from God and his answer was yes, and so of course I said yes. But he appended a very difficult condition to his proposal. He said, I will not marry you until you learn Quechua. So Spanish, Colorado, Now, I had to learn Quechua, the language of the Eastern jungle. But I didn't think that was too hard a price, too high a price to have to pay to go to the Eastern jungle to learn the language of the Quechua Indians. And so I left all my Colorado language material with my British colleagues, having coached them as to how to use this material and proceed on the basis of it. And I went to the Eastern jungle. I was living on another mission station, and it was always a delight when occasionally I would hear my fiance's voice on the shortwave radio. He was on another station, and all the stations would call in every morning to the Missionary Aviation Fellowship base so that if there was any emergency in any of these far-flung mission stations, uh, it could be helped with the missionary plane. So it was always a delight for me to occasionally hear Jim's voice on the radio just to say that everything was fine, everything was working all right on the station. But one day he sounded a little upset and kind of shaky and he said our entire station has just gone down the river in a flood. So everything that he had done in that year, he had built two brand new buildings from scratch, bamboo buildings, of course, with thatched roofs. He had repaired three older buildings that had become infested with termites and whatnot. all five of the buildings and some of the contents had gone down the Amazon River. And once again that little three-letter word arose in my thinking, why would God allow this? But there was a fourth thing. After Makadio's death and the death of the mother and baby and Jim's loss of the entire station, I just received a letter from one of my two British colleagues telling me that all of my Colorado language material had been stolen. Now this was in the days before Xerox and before tape recorders, and there were no copies of anything. I felt considerably worse back then than I did on Tuesday when my computer crashed. (laughs) I don't know how much i lost in that computer crash, but it couldn't be a whole year's work. once again, it was just as if God had taken one arm and just whipped everything that Jim had done off the board and then he took another arm, whipped the other everything I had done in that year off the board and then he was saying to us, will you trust me? Will you love me? Will you praise me? And it's when we're in the depths of sorrow and bewilderment and perplexity that we need then to look up at that old rugged cross, so despised by the world. It has a wondrous attraction for me, for the dear Lamb of God left his glory above, to bear it to dark Calvary. It says in Romans eight, thirty five to thirty eight, For your sake No, I have to start sooner than that. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. This is the Apostle Paul, of course, writing. He's speaking to the Corinthians, or to the Romans. It is for your sake that we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, conquerors through him who loved us." And I love this shining, brilliant, hallelujah kind of a testimony. Paul says, I am convinced That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, or anything else in all creation, as a modern translation says, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am persuaded that neither death nor life—and I won't go through the whole list again—but I am equally persuaded that God doesn't make any mistakes. Jim Elliot wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It was prophetic, wasn't it? He had no way of knowing that this life, which he could not keep, was going to be very short. He had also written elsewhere in his diary, have my blood, Lord, have it all. Let it be poured out for the life of the world. Could he possibly know that he was going to be speared to death by Alka Indians in 1956? He couldn't know that at all. He wrote in another place in his journal, I don't ask for a long life, but a short one like yours, Lord Jesus. And it was amazing to me, after Jim died, as I read through his journals to see how many prophetic entries there were. And of course, he had no way of knowing that he was going to be killed, but I'll never forget the exuberance with which he said goodbye to me as he went off into another area where these Alk Indians lived. He was so excited to go in the little yellow plane with Nate Saint, to go down and actually meet on the ground people that they had been dropping gifts to from the little yellow airplane. And of course, his thrill and exuberance and eagerness to get there was just eating him up. Couldn't wait to get there, and of course, I was thinking as he slammed the door of our house and walked out and strode down the trail to the where the little plane was waiting, I thought to myself, I wonder if he's ever going to open that door again. I remember vividly thinking that. I just wonder if he's going to come back. And of course he didn't. And we received the word about 5 days after the men had actually been killed that they were all dead. And the words that brought that came to my mind were from Isaiah 50 verse not 50, Isaiah 43 verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. And I can testify, ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon that he did not forsake me. That when the waters came up, he was there to carry me through. And, of course, there have been a good many tests since then. That was a long time ago, 1956. And yet the faithfulness of God just shines brighter and brighter to me. Jim wrote in another place in his diary, Light these idle sticks, O God, and consume my life for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, Lord Jesus. Take my life, my blood. It is not mine to, have it, to, ha- to save. Have it all. Let it be poured out as an oblation for the world." We are the sheep of his pasture. This is all from Jim's diary. What are sheep doing to bleat melodies and enjoy company for the flock? They're headed for an altar, fattened for bloody sacrifice. And we have bargained with him who bore a cross. My own life is full, he said. It's time to die. I have had all that a young man can have. I am ready to meet Jesus. That was written in December of 1951, five years before he was killed, and he was 24 years old. Jesus embraced the will of his Father, and he was willing to go to the cross for you and me. One of my very favorite hymns is Crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. I'm sure that we have a representation of a number of different churches in this audience this afternoon. And if in your church you're not singing hymns, but you're singing only praise songs, then do what you can to see if you could talk to the pastor and ask him if you might be able to learn some of these great hymns. Because I can tell you, it's the great, deep, powerful hymns of the faith that carried me through the darkest times of my life. And one of the stanzas of that same hymn, Crown Him of Many Crowns, is omitted from a good many of the hymn books. And this happens to be my favorite stanza. It says, Crown Him the Son of God, the Son of Man. Crown Him the Son of Man, who every grief hath known, and takes and bears it for his own that all in him may rest. Crown him the Son of God, crown him the Son of Man, whom every grief hath known, and takes and bears it for his own, that all in him may rest. He understands your bewilderment, your sorrow, your wickedness the things for which you are so terribly sorry and you wish you could undo, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. But we have to come and surrender and give ourselves to him and say, Lord, take me, cleanse me, do anything you want with me. Remember that personal encounter with the cross. To be a follower of the one who was crucified means sooner or later an encounter with that cross that always entails loss. I don't know in what way you may be struggling today, and those of you who listen to Gateway to Joy have probably heard me say, that I really kind of suspect that a whole lot of stuff that we call struggling really means delayed obedience. (laughs) Now, you mothers of little children, you know exactly what I mean. If you tell your little child you want him to put his shoes away in the closet and he's sitting there looking at the shoes on the floor and struggling with himself because he doesn't want to do what mama wants him to do, That's delayed obedience, isn't it? And in our family, there was no question that delayed obedience would be treated like disobedience. And we got that dinged into our thick heads again and again. Now, you know, I'm not talking just about huge, dramatic things that happen to missionaries. I am talking about the humdrum, down-to-earth little things that cut across your preferences when The cross of Christ cuts across the will of man. Somebody has to die. Do you recognize those tiny little tests? Submission to your husband, for example. May God give us grace to accept whatever form that personal encounter with the cross means this afternoon. God bless you.